Cut, and this is The K-Cut, a movie podcast for movie nerds. I'm James. I'm a content creator. I produce and release music on the A-List Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Profound Say podcast. I'm also part of the Film's Fatal team, where I launched an article called Guerrilla Film Fair, which takes a look at no-budget films, and I am currently prepping my first article for that. I am Andreas. I am the creator and one of the writers of Films Fatal. Um, my top 100 soundtracks of all time just got released last week, so... You can check that out, as well as some other good content. My um, my perfect reception article on Seinfeld, which is one of the greatest sitcoms of all time, just came out last Friday. So, yeah, check them out. I'm Rachel. I also write for Films Fatale, and I love world cinema, and I also write about lost films. Uh, one of the things about me is that I absolutely adore trivia as well. So I'm constantly annoying people with fun facts and things like that. And it got me thinking, what were some times that the movies either did really well on a particular topic in real life or completely ruined it? So in this episode, we're going to talk about movies that looked at different parts of history or other real life topics like science. And then we're going to talk about things that we were inspired to learn because of a film in the second half. So, James, what was your pick for this one? So this is a hard one because... I didn't know what direction to go with because there's so many things that you could do for this kind of subject. It's like, oh, what what told something and could have got it really right and really wrong. So I actually decided to, because upon viewing it, I enjoyed the film, but there were just a lot of nitpicky things that really annoyed me. And I'm going to go with Straight Outta Compton, which is the biopic of rap group NWA. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of things missing that really bothered me being that I know a lot of the history of that group. What are some examples? Well, my biggest issue was it really just kind of became the Dr. Dre Ice Cube Easy E show when there's a lot more to the story than just them. Like the fact that the first release on Ruthless Records happened to be girl rap group JJ Fad and their hit song Supersonic. They weren't mentioned at all. Or even like you didn't see them, uh, or Dr. Dre's time with his group before NWA, World Class Wrecking Crew, which is more of like an electro hop group, which didn't get brought up at all. Yeah, it almost looked like he just jumped straight from him discovering music production right into NWA, which couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, which that was the group he credits to him learning about how to make records. There's also. You know, they also cut straight to like they show the recording of Boys in the Hood, but they kind of gloss over the fact that that single came out. And then they also released a compilation album, which was some NWA songs and then other artists that they were working with. So that got glossed over. There's also the mission of Arabian Prince, who was a major contributor to NWA in the early days. There's also they just kind of gloss over some things. There's also some really weird things that I didn't really agree with the choice. Like there's the scene before easy goes to the hospital and gets diagnosed with AIDS where there's supposedly this NWA reunion kind of happening. It's like everybody, but Dre's there. That's not how that happened. They also made it over dramatic and him like, kind of like, you know, collapse and just it over dramatized it. And it was like, no, he was having a coughing fit after a show. And then he went to the hospital and then they did blood work and then found it out. And yeah. And also one of the things that really, cause I, one of the other things about me is they try to make it too much of a drama in certain situations. Cause there's, there's that scene of that whole legendary interaction between 
Ice Cube and the owner of, or one of the owners of Priority Records, where he goes in with, you know, his crew in a baseball bat and starts smashing things, talking about, you know, how he's underpaid and all this. Years ago, I learned through a documentary about hip hop feuds called Beef. I don't remember which one in the series it was, but the other owner of Priority Records was talking and he said after that incident, he gave him a call and asked him to go fishing so they could actually discuss things and work it out. And they just left that out. And I'm just like, I get the effect you wanted to have drama wise, but it's like, it seems like they're just cutting all really weird things. And then uh, one thing that I think should have definitely been put in the film, I understand why it wasn't, but um, the D Barnes incident. And for those who don't know what that is, oh, D Barnes yeah. is a rapper and television personality who was the host of, who, who became the promise through a Fox show called pump it up. And what had happened was, cause she was, friends with them because you know they'd done episodes with them when they were together but after the group split there was an episode where they had done interviews with ice cube and then in interviews with the remaining members of, uh, members of nwa and i don't think the intention was to put them in the same episode but her producers thought it would be a good idea to intercut those to kind of like play up on the drama and then she happened to be at a party with the other guys happened to be there and the story goes, Dre had been drinking, saw her and just saw Red and actually just assaulted her. And oh that God. wasn't brought up. And yeah. And I, just think- and I remember she was furious about it, too. Oh, yeah. She, you know, she's still dealing with that to this day. And then there's also other bits and pieces like um, singer Michelet, who Dre was dating at the time, who was one of Ruthless Records artists. Uh, she wasn't in it. And she actually herself says that she probably wasn't in it because Dre was abusive to her and she was just a quiet girlfriend who was just abused. And of course they wanted to want to include that. Yeah. And also the ending just kind of has this weird, I don't want to say it's a time jump, but that shot of, you know, cause Dre makes the chronic and then it has him in his altercation with Shug Knight leaving, you know, telling him he's going to leave and start his own record label. It's like, aftermath. Yeah. Yeah. And it just seems like it's just like, that was kind of rushed at the end. Yeah, I don't know. It, it was a good film. It was very well put together, but it just it glossed over so many things. And I don't remember. Did they address? Because Doctor Dre's brother died in the early days of the group. Oh goodness, I actually and don't recall. I don't. I don't remember once. if they addressed that because that was actually a turning point for him. He said that a lot of people say that things really changed for him and his vibe kind of changed, and they think that's one of the things that kind of got him more into this mentality. Because because. NWA kind of shifted when they released their second album. Yeah, they weren't always like straight out of Compton. Like that. And here's a lot of things that people people don't realize that if you listen to Straight Out of Compton, the album, I mean, some of it's very angry, but some of it's just straight up golden age hip hop. Like there's literally a song about trying to give you music to dance to. Like not all of it is is angry. And I feel like that was the vibe that the film was going for. We're only going to channel like that side of things. And also, if you know a lot about NWA or any of these individual uh, pieces or people, it wasn't really meant for you outside of like the occasional nudge, nudge, wink, wink, like um, that use of a needle in Suge Knight's uh, you know, altercation with DZE. If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. If you know, you know. Um, outside of that, though, it was really kind. And, and I say this having liked the film, it was really uh, like a, like a spark notes version or like it was, it was really like a, like a cliff notes version of 
the entire story. And if you're a big fan who's seen all this other stuff, you're really not going to get much out of it outside of, wow, Ice Cube's son looks like him and can act. That's kind of it, you know? It also, the um, like the reduced presence of MC Ren and DJ Yella, that was For really... vital. Yeah, I mean, Ren was an integral part of the group and Yellow was the co-producer of the group. He wasn't just the DJ. Like, it, it was just, yeah, they just... It's only because Ice Cube's a big name now and Dr. Dre's a big name now and Eazy-E, you know, unfortunately passed away. You so know, his he's legacy. got that legacy. Exactly. So, but that, they're completely disregarding anybody else who was like integral to, to that sound. It wasn't just like a big three with some other guys. Like MC Ren... Hot take, MC Ren, especially on the lyrical front or like on the MC front, is much more important than Dre was. <laughs> like, Dre oh, was yeah. there for the beats. Like, if you're looking at like the whole genesis, that's what I, that's all I'm saying. Well, also, I think the DOC's role in the group too wasn't really highlighted as much as it should have been either. Because, you know, and then also they didn't really go into Easy's first album because. Yeah. His first solo album dropped the same exact year. Yeah, but they had to make it look like, uh, you know, his, his uh, you know, post-NWA work, like that was where he started. And really, it's not true. Yeah, though, I, I will say, though, Paul Giamatti was a perfect casting for Jerry Heller. <laughs> I actually don't even remember what he looks like. That's how I remember him whenever I think of him, is that guy. <laughs> so. To be fair, when is Paul Giamatti not perfectly cast as something? That's true. Like in Love and Mercy, he's fantastic in that as well. And I don't even remember what that guy looks like either, but it's Paul Giamatti. He's he's due for an Oscar one of these days. He, he really is good. At least an honorary one. Yeah. yeah he's only in his mid-50s. It'll come. Perhaps. Uh, Rachel, did you pick a film that was accurate or inaccurate for this Um, first This is a bit of an odd take on it because it's a film that actively promoted a legend rather than a real story. And it Hmm. obscured the actual history that happened. And that is every single adaptation of Anastasia Romanov's life. Uh, Okay, that's interesting. So even like the animated one. Particularly, we're zeroing in on the Don Bluth one. So, <laughs> Particularly, okay. Yeah, so the Romanov family, of course, were executed in 1918 by the Bolsheviks. They'd been the ruling family of Russia. It was mom, dad, son, four daughters. And there were rumors for many years that one or more of the children had survived. And several imposters came forward. They said, oh, yes, I am totally a lost princess. And a lot of them got a lot of followers. And... So several of these stories were turned into films. The most famous is Anna Anderson. And so, you know, earlier on, maybe I can give these films a bit of a pass because there was some doubt about Anna Anderson. Uh, Later, DNA evidence proved that she was not related to the Romanovs. And um, even though the bodies of the last two Romanov children were not located till 2007, it was still pretty obvious by this point that they had all been killed. I mean, just based on the evidence... And so, again, with the earlier films, I'm like, well, everything was terrible in Hollywood back then. They went for fantasy over reality, so I'm not going to go too hard after those. But what really bothers me is that the story was marketed to children in the Don Bluth movie. So Anastasia Romanov was a real woman 
a girl. She was only 17. She was executed for being born to the wrong family. She did nothing wrong. And they turned it into this pseudo-Disney princess stuff for children to see. And the thing is, there would have been, I think, an interesting story out of the Romanovs' lives. I think there might even have been an interesting story out of the Anna Anderson story, as long as you made it clear at the end that she was a fake. But to turn it into a children's movie, this sort of wish-fulfillment fantasy that maybe you're a secret princess too, it bothers me. And like I said, the Romanov children, two of them had been missing for many years, and they finally located them in 2007. And yet the story's still being made. The Don Bluth movie is being made into a stage musical, or it has been. They did tone down some of the ahistorical aspects, so the villain is no longer Ghost Rasputin. Thank you. And they're also releasing other Anastasia movies aimed towards kids. And so strikes me as tremendously offensive that that happened at all. Yeah, I can see why, because, and this is not a, okay, this is a partial slight, but I, I don't mean for it to be a slight. Um, that film is probably one of the only, like, good things that Don Bluth, I think, has, like, done perhaps ever. But it's also at the expense of, I mean, so much rich literature. And look, I know for what it's worth of the non-Disney Renaissance films of the 90s, it's one of the finer animated films, but that's still, like, as, like, this adaptation of something, it's very, very, I, I don't want to use the word disrespectful, but way off. It, 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 it's, it is way off. Like, it's, it's incredibly way off, actually. Yeah, and I give him less of a pass because it was the 90s and because most historians agreed that the, that the whole family had been killed. I respect the movie aesthetically, but I think either they could have done it with a completely fictional story about a secret princess, or they could have taken another royal story that had a better ending and not completely disrespected this young woman's life. Yeah, I, I, I get it. I mean, I, I fully get it. Um, it's weird because for some reason I would have thought that you would have like liked this film, but you know, now that you've explained it, I can actually see exactly why I was completely wrong and that you wouldn't have liked it at all. I think. Yeah. And I don't know. I've, like I've been to St. Petersburg and I've seen the sites like where, where the children were born and where their graves are now. And it was a really tremendous tragedy. It was a time of huge upheaval. And just to slap it in, in a sort of candy coated children's movie, it's, it's wrong. Yeah, I, I understand. I mean, did you like it as a child? I did. I did. Um, it's funny, there was actually a children's book released around the same time that got me into Russia, and it was straight up honest with what had happened to the family. And I, if children can handle that truth in a book, I don't see why there couldn't have been a children's movie that was honest about history. Yeah, I mean, fair enough, especially for like, you know, young kids. I feel like yeah. maybe the emphasis in the 90s was like on art style and try to capture this this magic and... Uh, it was also playing it safe. Why not cover Elizabeth the first, something like that? Yeah, or at least adapting these because that's that's that is what Disney does. They do adapt classic literature or fairy tales and rework them into these these magical things. And 
as we know, a lot of uh, Disney films are incredibly inaccurate with what they are adapting. Like if you wanted to look at the real um, the Little Mermaid story, uh, I think you'd have nightmares. Or for real life people, there's Pocahontas, but that's a whole nother podcast. Yeah, that's my pick. No, I'm kidding. It's it's not. But for real, Pocahontas is as historically inaccurate as you can get. First off, she was a child. Yeah. Like, like if that is more fictitious, like just who she is in the film is more fictitious than the talking tree and the animals and stuff, then you've got really major issues. Like, also, there are no cliffs that tall in coastal Virginia. No, and there are no colors of the wind. The wind is transparent. Anyway, so, um, yeah, I'm actually going to try and head in the opposite direction. And pick something that is very historically accurate. Um, now, I don't know much about this subject. And something I was initially thinking of was somebody like Jane Campion and the piano. But we've brought up the piano, I think, too many times on the pod so far. So <laughs> I try to go with a similar film that made me feel a similar thing. And that's... Uh, if it's not Jane Campion, then it's Julie Dash and it's Daughters of the Dust. And I'll never forget the first time that I saw this. Um, I didn't know what I was in for. It was actually for an undergrad film class. This is like over 10 years ago. I've seen it uh, once or twice since. Um, all I could tell, and there's a lot of historical films. There's a lot of period pieces where you can tell with the costumes that they put some work into this to bring you back in time, but some just really nail it and you feel like, wow, this is exactly what it must have looked like, even if you don't know. And this is one of them. And let me tell you, uh, Dash's attention to detail in this film, right down to the way that everybody talks, they talk with something called a Gula dialect. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And it's just fascinating to watch because you know if you watch something and i don't mean to to just you know to disrespect it in any way but if you watch something like gladiator and they're in rome or you know different parts of that that part of europe and they're speaking in british accents i mean i'm sorry i don't think they were doing that but here you feel like you're actually have been transported back to the turn of the century and you know just seeing like all of the pieces play into you know come into place like the cinematography is just so like lush and like yellow and seep yeah to try and make it look like you're looking at these living photographs and they do the film justice because the film itself is just so fixated on trying to tell these uh these like the gula stories perfectly and you're, you're looking at a side of history, especially in the 90s, that just nobody was discussing. And it was so important. And there's a reason why it's been referenced so much when it comes to like Black History Month, when, when, it, when people are discussing filmmakers or prominent female filmmaking or black filmmaking or um, Beyonce herself referenced the film in Lemonade, like her mm-hmm. hour-long music video. And people were like reintroduced to it again. It's because nobody was telling this side of history, this side of like the African American experience. And Dash said, "Well, I'm going to have to be the first, and I'm going to do it right." And it's so it's it's a singular experience. Where if you haven't seen it, 
it's artistically gorgeous, but historically it's as enriching as, or it's as fulfilling as if you go to like a museum and you see like the one attraction that just grips you and you feel like you're like an expert on the subject now, but you're not and you're itching to discover more. She like nailed it when it came to, you know, black representation, this important voice and telling a side of history, which has been whitewashed or disrespected for very, very long in cinematic history. The other thing is I think a lot of period dramas suffer from looking like everybody just stepped out of their dressing room. You know, you can tell everybody's putting on costumes and standing around. Yeah. But this movie looks lived in. It looks like they're actually people going about their day. You know, the costumes get rumpled and people kind of do ordinary things. They get frazzled with each other, that kind of thing. It really feels like normal people in this movie instead of just a bunch of actors who are paid to stand there. It really does. Like when it comes to like a period piece for what it's worth, this is like maybe top five most convincing films I think I've ever seen. Like it just feels like I look, I love a lot of period piece films. I love the age of innocence, for instance, but when I'm watching the age of innocence, I don't feel like I've transported to that time. I feel like I'm watching a beautifully crafted film. Daughters of the dust for a, Split seconds here and there, I forget that these are contemporary or Zen contemporary performers performing. It doesn't feel like that whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really solid pick. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. But now we're going to get into, I believe, the films that really inspired us to take up some sort of lesson or to try and discover more about something because they did such a good job introducing a subject matter to us. So uh, I believe that's that's the premise, correct? Yes, that's correct. Awesome. Uh, should we go the same order then? James, uh, what film inspired you to take up something or to learn more about something? Zodiac by David Fincher. Awesome. Interesting. I think that's a that's an interesting pick, especially because I would argue it's at least partially revisionist, but not overkill like the Black Dahlia film by uh, Brian De Palma. So you, how much did you know about the Zodiac Killer before this? I didn't know much, but upon seeing that movie, I had to just, you know, go into the rabbit hole of that whole thing because it's probably one of the most fascinating things in true crime. Yeah, it's such a peculiar head scratching especially if you look at it nowadays with the internet or you know lightning fast media something like the zodiac killer i'd hope just couldn't exist today so to know that this was like one of the last terrible crime related things of its kind um where this guy just could not get caught even though he was trying Exactly. He was leaving all of these clues and everything. All the, the ciphers he was leaving, which the final one actually, the one that they couldn't solve, they actually solved the final cipher. Oh, for real? Yeah. It, and it, obviously it didn't like answer any questions. It was just some you know, obscure, you know, pseudo philosophical word salad as he always tried. Yeah. But yeah, it's like once you go down that rabbit hole, it's like it, it's not even like specific nuances. It's just this whole case in general is just fascinating. You know, also, modus operandi of serial killers is always really intriguing because 
how do you settle on a style in that regard? Well, I hope I never find out, but... Uh, right, exactly. I feel like a film like this is at least a foray into a discovery of, like, a true crime obsession with podcasts and whatnot, so... It's also, I think, David Fincher's style really works with this. Because the thing is, it's like, he doesn't outright make horror movies, but he pulls out some terrifying things. It's just one of those things, it's like, it's just one of those crimes, it's like, yo, how does... How does someone like this just end up happening? And the fact that it's like the ciphers also are just really fascinating. It's like, how did you take the, not only did he commit these crimes, but he took the time to come up with elaborate clues. Yeah. Just to send the police on this whole chase. And was apparently so good at it that he didn't get caught. And it's been what, 50 years now? More than 50? Yeah, he's he's never been caught. Although some people think he's Ted Cruz. <laughs> Wow! Yeah, there's, uh, there's that. Thinking is one thing. <laughs> knowing. <laughs> no, also, probably it's some of the best performances by Robert Downey Jr. and Jake Gyllenhaal. Yes. Yeah, which is saying a lot because Jake Gyllenhaal, I feel like, is uh, not underrated by the people, but underrated perhaps critically and by certain <clears throat> academies. Uh, I would 100 yeah. percent agree. <laughs> just to say that. It's 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 saying a lot. I also like it because it's one of those ones that just sort of flies under the radar when you talk about the great films. Like to me, I put this in line with like you know, like the prestige by Christopher Nolan. Is it as big as his other films? No, but I'd argue it's one of his best or like you just, you know, put out uh, the, on this Thursday article about after hours by Scorsese. Oh, it's just one of those one that just sort of like it, we all know it's there, but it's like critically, it doesn't have quite the prestige as all the, like their quote unquote great works. And this is just one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't know so much anymore because I feel like I feel like Zodiac is starting to get, at least from my perspective, a lot more talked about. So I feel like you know, especially since since we we started doing retrospectives of the two thousands, and it now it's been lot. yeah, now that it's been even longer, it's been over ten years since that, and it's being reassessed again. So it's the Kubrick like, effect. What do you yeah, think? Nineteen ninety like was ten years ago. Oh, I wish. <laughs> um, it, it's definitely starting to, or it's already started to be heavily discussed. I feel like, especially when it comes to Fincher's canon, because like if you're looking at like everything that this guy did, a lot of people are going to say, "Look, I love X film, Y film, but I'm going to go with with um, Zodiac." And I'm seeing it more and more often, so I feel like it's not going to be too underrepresented. Now he's got to get After Hours talked about more. Well, I'm trying. (laughs) (laughs) As you can see, I'm trying. Uh, All right, Rachel, what about you? What is a film that heavily inspired you to try and learn about something? Well, when I was about the same age as the Anastasia movie came out, another movie came out called Titanic. You may have heard of it. And I know what you're thinking. Yes, I became one of those Titanic heads. And that's not really true. What it did for me was it got me into disaster studies, which is a really, really fascinating field. Because 
every disaster says something about the society it's in. And sometimes it um, it shows that something was lacking and that something failed so that the disaster can happen. Sometimes it exposes cracks in society. And so there's always a deeper meaning behind whatever this disaster is, even if you don't really see it right away. Titanic is the epitome of this because I think it's human hubris. We were getting into the 20th century, there were all these new inventions coming, and the world was just building and building and building in unstoppable progress. And I think that the Titanic sinking marked the end of an era where we realized, no, wait, we are fallible, this unsinkable ship sank. And that sort of gilded age came to a screeching halt and was helped along by World War II, or World War One a couple of years later. So I couldn't have articulated this when I was younger, but Watching it, I could tell that I was watching the end of something much bigger than a ship. And as time went on, I looked at more disasters. I read the history behind them, and I I can see the theme behind it. I feel like it's weird. I actually was assuming you were going to bring up this film when it came to the historical accuracy portion of the pod. They were mostly pretty good. Like Some of the characters weren't real, but the stuff about the ship was very, very accurate. Well, yeah, I feel like the you know the character thing that's a bit of a given because you know um, nowadays I feel like it'd be even easier to tell actual specific stories that happened, you know, mm-hmm. back during the actual sinking. But you know, I always like in Titanic to Gone with the Wind. I feel like you know narratively it's it is what it is, but in terms of the actual spectacle, historical accuracy, um, okay. Uh, some parts of historical accuracy when it comes to Gone with the Wind, but more so Titanic. And the attention to detail, like, they're beyond gargantuan. Like, they're beyond, you know, they're beyond description. And Mm -hmm. when it comes to how heavily inspired by the actual Titanic itself and the people who lived on, on the ship, look, I've... I'll say what I want to say about the actual film itself, but when it comes to relaying the actual event and the disaster itself, I don't like saying this because I'm not the biggest fan of James Cameron, but the guy, the guy really nailed it. Like he really poured his heart and soul into, into really resurrecting these ghosts and telling their story in his own interesting way um but you know like the accuracy of like how the ship broke in half and you know the actual sinking and even just the detail of like what the ship you know its interior looked like Mm -hmm. is just fascinating it's it really is fascinating because one of those films where even if you don't like it the special features are like calling your name like you just have to check out like the amount of work put into this thing (laughs) Now imagine if he had got like an actually good screenwriter for the movie instead of writing it himself. Yeah. And I think it really shows the sense of its place in history and how it became this almost almost mythic story uh, it, among the people over the 80 years before that movie was made. Like, yeah. yeah, a full sense of it. Wasn't it just announced that they made a recreation of the ship and they're going to be traveling on the same route? Uh-oh. Oh, jeez. I think Isn't that, that actually what happens happened. in Rick and Morty? <laughs> they do it on Rick and Morty, so if they're doing that, then I mean, I hate to say it, but that, that show has influenced real life. 
Well, it's funny. Someone had made a joke about the announcement saying it's like, oh, I guess it's a good thing that, you know, we melted all the glaciers. (laughs) Now it's now it's a safe passage. No, anyway, let's not get too dark here. Uh, uh, For for mine, it's a little different, um, but I feel like it's completely applicable. It's not necessarily a subject. It's more of a topic. So it's going to sound a bit strange, but when I was a teenager and I was doing a, a horror movie class, it was technically gothic lit, but we watched everything from like Hitchcock's uh, Rear Window and Psycho to Carrie by De Paula. Um, we also watched uh, Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby. And that specific film, I don't know what it was, but that specific one, because we also watched Psycho, keep in mind, that got me beyond obsessed with the 60s and I just needed to learn more. I don't know what it was. Maybe the way that the film looked and like that technicolor, like the use of the greens and seeing the fashion and um, I don't know what it was. But it's interesting because obviously Rosemary's Baby is an integral part of the 60s, not just because of the evolution of horror films, but because it's ties to, sadly, unfortunately, what happened to Sharon Tate because of the film and the Manson family and, you know, unfortunately, the rest is history. So the deeper into discovering the 60s that I got, I learned its significance in the grand scheme of things even bigger, especially because it really did mark the end of, you know, like the, the, the peace movements and the, the, the flower ages of, of the sixties, like all of that stuff was gone when Sharon Tate was gone and Rosemary's baby itself felt like it was also trying to get rid of the happier Hollywood films. It was a, it was like a precursor to the new Hollywood movement uh, amongst other films, like again, psycho or, Bonnie and Clyde, that sort of stuff. So after I saw Rosemary's Baby, again, I got really into the idea of the 60s. Now, when we first moved to Canada, my family and I, we listened to the oldies station and they played 50s, 70s, but also 60s. You know, it was like the early 90s, so the 80s wasn't applicable here. Um, But I kind of, after this film... And starting to go back into the 60s. Then that nostalgia started to come back. All these songs I remember hearing when I was a kid. You know, I didn't really grow up on the Backstreet Boys. I mean, I did eventually once we started listening to like the like the adult contemporary or soft rock stations. Remember when soft rock was a thing? Wasn't that lovely? Um, but the 60s ended up becoming really nostalgic for me. Where it's like, okay... I'm going to be listening to like the grassroots and the loving spoonful and uh, oh my goodness, like so many countless acts, Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, but I, you know, I'm not going to name like the big ones, like, like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Cause those are obvious. So I'm talking like the deep cuts. Like this is when I discovered, like, I really love, the Supremes. I really love the the Ronettes, you know, the Crystals and all these girl groups. And this waterfall all started from Rosemary's Baby because the 60s, there was just something so 
unique about it to me at that age. And I was like, I've got to learn more. Now, again, I would consider Psycho the superior film, but it was the colors of Rosemary's Baby and the graininess of the film and the specific camera angles and technology. I just had to learn more. And in case it isn't blatantly obvious, uh, perhaps maybe not for listeners at home, but for, for everyone here who knows me well, yeah, to this day, the 60s are still my favorite era when it comes to overall music, when it comes to cinema, for sure. Like, um, my top 100 films of the 60s list is for sure, my, the, like, probably my favorite thing I've ever written. And it was the most joy I've ever had researching a, a particular topic. Um, yeah, I've got to go with the 60s. That's, that's my answer in large. I had a 60s phase too, but I mostly blame it on the Forrest Gump movie. That's true. Uh, well, what eras does he live in again? They go through all sorts in, the, yeah, in that film. Yeah, he's a kid in the 50s, and he, he goes to like college age, and then the army and in then the it's 60s, Vietnam. and then yeah. he's up from there. Yeah, I know the 60s. I um, And look, the older I get, the more I can identify a lot of the problems that the 60s had, and it wasn't all just, it wasn't all just rainbows, but... The '60s and my my love of it, it it also has greatly influenced a lot of other things like Mad Men, which is one of my all time favorite series. I mean, God bless it. Speaking of historical accuracy, that was actually what I had in mind for this episode pretty much the entire time since you proposed it. But we can't do TV series. But I was thinking Mad Men. That's like one of the most historically accurate any things I've ever seen. Like down to the ice cubes, it was historically accurate. Um, yeah, they, they definitely pulled that off well. Oh yeah, and like the fact that every storyline lines up in history, so exactly when the moon landing is supposed to be, they figure it out. Or like this this poisonous smog that infiltrated New York, they implemented that as well. Like, oh, it's even God like bless the them. tiniest little details. So you might hear someone listening to the radio, and it's a story, and it's never mentioned or brought up in conversation, but it's a new story that would have happened that week. God bless it. Yeah. it. It really is like one of the finest things. But yeah. Uh, it's also one of those things where it's like everything that happened kind of affected their business in a way. Yeah. So it's like they had the perfect setting in like characters and careers because like literally everything that happened affected something that was going on with how they had to approach business. Or like I'm binge watching Downton Abbey right now and the amount of detail and like offhand references they have for 1910s to 1920s Britain is unbelievable. There's stuff that only people who are seriously into history would pick up on. Is this your first time watching Downton Abbey? Oh, no, no. This is my umpteenth rewatch. For those viewers who don't know, my surname is the same as the family in Downton Abbey. So my family is invested in this series. Oh, right. Right, right. (laughs) I I forgot about this this conversation. It's it's me. I I have yet to watch all of it. Uh, Yeah. I, I mean, perhaps very realistic TV shows is something we could get into another time, but unf- I feel like we've pretty much brought up at least two fine examples. James, what's yours for the hell of it? Oh, I don't know. I don't. I don't watch too many TV shows. So uh, I don't the, know. The I Wire. Mean, Just say The Wire. <laughs> I've never seen The Wire. I've had, never had interest in The Wire. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Oh, Sorry, yeah. Michael K. Williams, uh, devastating. But say The Wire, and you'll be accurate. You, I'm you'll not be right. I'd, I'd say Bad Men myself. I still have to finish the second half of season seven, though, just because I just haven't had time to sit down have and watch it. Have you never finished it? But then no, I just, I've always, Dude. I just haven't yet. It's really hard for me to sit down and watch TV series. In hindsight, the finale is 
one of my favorites in hindsight. Because, you know, when it first happened, I was like, okay, don't ride the high. Don't don't be obsessed with this. Let it age. Tell, you know, let's see what time will tell. Time has told me that finale is a damn good one. So you better get to it, James. <laughs> I, don't, I don't just, they need to stop doing that goofy thing where they decide to split things into two parts. Like, well, they had to for this because the the final half takes place in the seventies, so they had to like prepare for it. I don't know. I it was that was part of it because like I'd watched the first half, and then it was like I just never got around to it because I was just too busy around that time. That's forget whatever smorgasbord pick you have. That's what you're doing like right now. That's what you're doing. <laughs> it's like how many episodes? It's like seven episodes. Come on, James, you can do it. <laughs> Speaking uh, I mean, of smorgasbord, yes, we should remind everybody what our picks are this month. So our individual recommendations are When the Wind Blows, Phantom of the Paradise, and number three is... Um, George Washington. George Washington, that's right. And then our collective pick is going to be Spanish Dracula, that is the Spanish version of the Bela Lugosi film that was filmed at the same time. And so I would recommend being familiar with both versions if you're going to join in at home. Fantastic, fantastic. Otherwise, let's do some weekly recommendations completely at random. So, uh, I guess same order. James, what is your random recommendation? I'm going to go with The Frighteners by Peter Jackson. Okay, what's what's that one about? Why do you recommend it? Uh, just because it's, it's one of those like fun Peter Jackson movies. It's like a, it's a supernatural comedy horror movie, and it stars Michael J. Fox. And it's just one that I like had watched as a kid. And I will still watch it to this day just because it's very entertaining. Also, the special effects are insane for the time period. Because it has to do with a like Michael J. Fox's character can see ghosts. And special effects wise, this is one of the most impressive movies from that era. Awesome. It's also like it's also before he, you know, he, you know, because it's like I'm not a big fan and I understand why everybody likes it. But it's like I kind of like Peter Jackson outside of the context of Lord of the Rings because he has done other stuff. And I don't think yes. we talk about that enough. Oh, no. He's got some great ones. As much as I love Lord of the Rings. <laughs> uh, Rachel, what is yours? Mine is called My American Cousin. It is a nostalgia film about the 50s, not the 60s. And it actually is not only filmed in, but takes place in the same region of British Columbia where I grew up. So people who want to know more of, or want to see a part of Canada that's not normally shown, that's a good way to start. And it's just a really solid movie about growing up and longing for something bigger than what you have and having a bit of glamour come into your life. Um, When I mentioned this movie to my mother, she said, oh my God, everybody saw American Cousin when it came out. And I'm like, well, popular Canadian movie doesn't come along too often. So I'm throwing it out there. Yeah, sounds good to me. Uh, Yeah. And, you know, Canadian pride, that never hurts. Um, uh, yeah, in all honesty, I haven't been watching a lot of films recently because I've been doing my TV research. But uh, one that, that comes to mind, uh, and I, I believe this is one that uh, Michael K. Williams picked in his uh, his uh, Criterion selection. Uh, you know, again, rest in peace. But, like, I couldn't help but think about it since, since I, you know, I revisited that video the other day. Uh, the Night of the Hunter, which uh, was heavily despised when it was like released, but now this film by Charles Lawton—it was the only film that he directed because he was primarily an actor. I mean, people adore this thing, and if you haven't seen it, 
um, Michael K. Williams approves of it. I approve of it. The Night of the Hunter is a very dark film for its time, for the 50s. And you're going to be seeing some really crazy stuff, including um, a psychopathic uh, pastor who basically goes on on a murderous rampage. And otherwise, the entire thing is, is filmed with stunning stunning use of shadows and minimal lighting and crazy borderline German expressionist use of, of architecture and incredible, incredible camera techniques for its time. And I think aesthetically it's one of the most outstanding films you may ever see. And um, narratively very haunting. So the night of the hunter, that is the K-Cut, and thank you so much for listening. We are now going into the L-Cut. I hope you learned something today.